So have you ever had the shame, the walk of shame experience? You know, where you find yourself walking down the highway, back to your vehicle, the red can in your hand? Some of you who are laughing know that walk of shame. Unfortunately, I have experienced it on a regular basis. I don't usually walk, though. I usually phone a friend. Um, it's become so commonplace that uh, if somebody sees my car, my vehicle, which is this is my vehicle. Uh, no, it's not for sale. No, it never will be for sale. It has 449,000 miles on it, one brand new wheel bearing, four new tires, and no, you cannot have it and you cannot buy it from me. We have a covenantal relationship until death do part us. Uh, she will be my vehicle. So you know the walk of shame where you're, um, you swear that, that you had 40 miles to empty and you're at 38 miles. And you're like, something's wrong. Honey, you're out of gas. No, it can't be. I have two more miles. <laughs> it's happened so frequently to me that I my car is, say, parked on Ojibwe and 371, a, a friend will call and say, did you run out of gas? <laughs> no, we're just running to town and trying to be economical with our gas consumption. You know that feeling when you drive by somebody on the side of the road and you're like, ha, glad that's not me. Hood's popped open, you're like, ah, oh, they should have bought a different vehicle. Maybe they've got a flat tire, and you're like, well, they probably have AAA. Or they clearly are out of gas because they're standing by their gas tank, and you're like, I'm sure somebody will help them. Glad it's not me. Roadside issues are never fun. Yes, I've also ran out of gas twice in a boat. Um, that's not fun either. It was the ride of shame on Madeline Island as I was pedaling my son's bike with a five-gallon gas tank. Simon and Stacy could have bailed me out the whole time. You ever been stranded on the side of the road? It's not fun. As all your friends drive by and they're like, oh, I think that looks like Eric's vehicle. Why aren't you stopping to help me? Oh, I figured you had it under control. No, you just didn't want to be drug into the mess. Today we're talking about some roadside issues. As we continue in the book of Isaiah, we get another oracle. We're on to Isaiah chapter 19. And this oracle is concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptians, and they will fight each other. They will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts." And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. 
all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know that what the Lord of hosts has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. We start out this, this oracle with this amazing picture of the Lord riding in on a swift cloud. This other oracle of a mighty nation taking place in about 711 B.C. And God makes this grand Tony Stark-like entrance or Maybe we should start referring to it as a Richard Browning-type entrance. You know the guy who's constructed the Iron Man suit? And for a cool $440,000, you can have one of your own. He makes this entrance on a swift cloud. It immediately reminded me of my childhood, and some of you have no idea who Super Mario Brothers are. I'm sorry for you. You know, in Super Mario Brothers, when the little guy came out of the clouds and he started throwing things at you, and you're like, what is happening in 8-bit? I don't know how to deal with this. God makes this grand entrance from the clouds, and he is going to bring some destruction on Egypt. Their hearts will melt within them. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. They will fight each They will fight each against another. And it's interesting, we have this three-part section in this oracle where we ask ourselves, what is it that we put our trust in? The big three for the Egyptians were their idols, their economic status from their natural resources, and their wisdom. So we ask, what is it that we put our trust in? He says, the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols, and the sorcerers, and the medium, and the necromancers. I find it quite ironic. The last time I preached, we talked about necromancers. (laughs) And no, it's not some newfangled word for romance. It is this idea of seeking out wisdom from some other source. In particular, necromancers were known for their summoning of the dead. And it's interesting that we've advanced almost 3,000 years, and yet we still have a tendency to think that we can consult with the dead through other people. This special knowledge from horoscopes and Ouija boards and fortune cookies. Do we really believe fortune cookies? I mean, really? (laughs) Superstitions. 
And the Egyptians go to these people looking for this insight into things that they cannot come up with. And they trust in these idols and they are going to be melted away. Where do we put our trust? Do we put our trust in these types of things that the Egyptians are putting their trust in? See, it's twofold because the Israelites are tempted by their political position and to align themselves with these other superpowers within the region, Egypt being one of them. And so they have this tendency to say, hey, maybe we'll align ourselves with Egypt, and so we'll have some protection, and yeah, we probably shouldn't because we should be trusting in what God is going to provide for us, but I mean, after the fact, look at where we're at, and Egypt can provide these things for us. And this oracle is part to the Egyptians and part to the people of Israel to say, do not trust in these things that Egypt thinks that they have to offer you. Don't trust in these other gods that provide them with this knowledge that is not knowledge at all. Because as God tells them, I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And we know from history that the Egyptians are overtaken and ruled by someone other than themselves. And then he goes on to the next thing, the next thing that we put our trust in. So Elephant Butte Lake was created in 1916. It it sits at the end of the, the Rio Grande River, about 156 miles from the Mexico-New Mexico border. And, and it was created in 1916 as a reservoir for irrigation waters to provide water to uh, northern Mexico, uh, southern New Mexico, and Texas. And if you've ever eaten a hatch green chili, you know that it is provided for us because of the water of the Rio Grande. And so they built this dam to control the flow of the Rio Grande. So they trap the water that comes out of Colorado and the mountains. They trap it there. And at its maximum, it's 2.2 million acres. And in 1999, when Nikki went to Elephant View Lake for the first time, the camp that she was working at had to put in barricades to protect themselves from the waters lapping up against the foundation of the cabins. Well, in 2002, Nikki and I decided to move down to New Mexico to work full-time at at Lone Tree Lakeshore Camp, which is a Christian water sports camp right there on the lake. And that summer, um, something happened. Well, a number of things. There were compounding factors, and literally every day we were losing about 12 inches of water. So you'd stick a stick stick (laughs) in the shore at the water line, and you wake up the next morning, and 12 inches was gone. And by the time 2003 rolled around, Elephant Butte Lake was at 10% of its capacity. Put that differently. Let's say you were staying at Grandview Lodge and you wanted to go to the beach. You'd have to drive to the rock pile two miles. Or just to be equal, let's say you were staying at Madden's or Craigan's and you wanted to go to the beach. You'd have to go drive or walk two miles to the point that shall not be mentioned where Ernie's is in order to experience the water. Drought is not a good thing. 
Many of us are aware of the lifeblood that provides the Egyptian landscape that is the Nile. And the Nile was what kept these people in power. We see all of these things that are going to take place. The waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dried and parched and its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched. We be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. <laughs> Hello. All who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. Certainly we are aware or on some cognitive level of the dirty 30s and the Great Depression in our country and what that did. But it seems to be something that happened way back when, and yeah, we had grandparents or great-grandparents that talked about it. And we talk about depression babies and how they hoard things and keep extra cans of food in the basement for 30 years because you never know. And then we today waste our food at an alarming rate because, well, just go to the grocery store and get more. And this image that that we see in this oracle of what is going to take place in Egypt is one of utter devastation. The natural resources that uh, that they solely rely on is not going to be there. And Egypt without the Nile is just another section of the desert. And it's, it's well known that the desert stop, starts where the edge of the Nile stops. And so this oracle to the Egyptians is that what you think is going to be your golden goose for the rest of your lives is not going to be the case. And the Egyptians are made aware that the things that they trust in are temporal, are fleeting, and they are ultimately under the control of Yahweh, who is God. And we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we place our trust in? What is it that we place our trust in on a daily basis? Is it our jobs? Is it our family, our spouses, our kids, our homes, our health? What is it that we placed our trust in first and foremost? Is it God? So this uh, last week we were up in Bayfield. We go up there pretty much every year, and and we uh, go out to Madeline Island and jump off these rocks and And trust is a funny thing, right? Because you get to the edge of the rock, and you're like, I've literally jumped off this rock time and time again. But you get to the edge, and you're like, I'm not really sure. Why are you not sure? Well, you know, um, maybe Lake Superior has changed. (laughs) No. No. And then you have other people that walk up to the rock and they're like, oh, is it deep enough? Yeah, go ahead. Ooh, bonsai. Like, you just met me and you trusted what I said. 
What's your problem? How did you know that it was deep enough? Well, you said it was deep enough. How did you know that I knew that it was deep enough? I trusted you. Okay. And we have this interesting thing when we think about this idea of trust in our lives. And we can sing a song about trusting in God. But when we get down to brass tacks, we say, do I really trust that God is going to provide for me? Do I really trust that God is who he says he is and he is going to do what he said he would do? And as I was thinking about the roadside dilemma, we often think about the question of, God, why is this happening? That's the first thing. Second thing is, everything happens for a reason. Two things about that. Um, the reason why you run out of gas is not God's fault. <laughs> so don't ask, God, why is this happening to me? You didn't fill your gas tank. That's why. It's happening for a reason. Yeah, because you're not very smart and you didn't obey what the gas tank said. Like, this isn't hard philosophical questions. It's just reality. So we ask ourselves, what is it that we trust in? Do we trust in our economic resources and think, oh, we'll always be fine because of our economic position? Or do we trust that we will always be fine because God is in control? Meaning God wants what's best for us, and he will see to it that it is going to happen. Because Israel is looking at the nation of Egypt and thinking, maybe I should align myself with them. And God is saying, not so fast. Well, what about the Nile? Yeah, it could go away. You need to trust in me first and foremost. And then the next thing that they should be aware of in their trust is this idea of wisdom. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings, when there then where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. What do we trust in? And what is wisdom to us? Better yet, what are the sources of knowledge that we use in our lives? Because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that the knowledge of the world or the knowledge of man is foolishness. But how often do we find ourselves in situations where we seek out wise counsel from someone who is other than a follower of Jesus Christ because they're wise in this area or maybe they stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night? 
where does our wisdom come from in life's challenging situations? When we need some wisdom about a parenting decision or a marital decision or about a job decision, do we seek those who are followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost? Do we seek His Word and the discernment from His Spirit? Or do we seek, well, the wisdom that comes from the grocery store aisle? Or sources like Egypt? And I know the immediate response is, so so does that mean I shouldn't try to gain more knowledge that pertains to the world? Absolutely not. I recently was given a phenomenal t-shirt that says, I make pancakes and know things. That's true. On both accounts. Some of these things I know have no eternal value at all. I acknowledge that. For instance, if you, if you follow the Nestle Tilhausa, it's a great family recipe, um, and you put in one cup of brown sugar instead of three-fourths cup of brown sugar and three-fourths cup white sugar, you put in one cup brown sugar, half a cup of white sugar, your chocolate chip cookies will be chewier. You're welcome. <laughs> or if you mix your eggs with your oil and butter, melted butter, when you're making pancakes, when you dump in the cold buttermilk, the, the butter won't congeal back up into a solid-like state with the cold buttermilk. You're welcome. Also, the fact that I was, had to inform some people of, the value of blueberries is far beyond the antioxidants. The amount of pectin that exists in blueberries helps them to be great in crumbles and not needing an additional congealer. Again, you're welcome. But where do we go when we need to make a decision? Do we seek out the wisdom that comes from God? Or do we seek out the wisdom that comes from the world? What if we woke up tomorrow morning and we were living in Gilead? Okay, too hard to imagine. But what if we went to our place of employment tomorrow and we were told our services were no longer needed? Or what if, what if we woke up in the morning and we were having coffee with our spouse and they said, you know what, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I'd like you to leave. Or what if we were informed that our parent had Alzheimer's and would only get worse? Or that doctor's appointment that we have this week, we were informed that we only had a few months to live. What if we were told our child was never going to get any better? What if we realized that that thing that we had placed our supreme trust in was failing us, the world? The thing is, the roadside dilemma has this, has this phase, right? First thing you think is, I'm glad that's not me. Second thing you think maybe immediately thereafter is I should probably stop and help. Third thing you think immediately after that thought is I shouldn't stop and help because it's probably a setup and they're going to rob me. You laugh, but I guarantee you've thought it. Fourth thing you think, ah, someone else will help them. And lastly, as you're miles down the road, I'm sure glad that wasn't me. When we come to this oracle, we're faced with this interesting dilemma where we look at Egypt and we say, 
I'm sure glad that's not me. But what if it is us? What if we are Egypt and we're placing our trust in these worldly things that are failing instead of placing our supreme and ultimate trust in the promises that God has given us in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? What if our friend is that person on the side of the road who is Egypt? Are we going to hope that somebody else is going to stop and help them? Or are we going to come alongside them and say, hey, I know where you're at. I've been where you're at. Let me help you. And not me, but let me help you by showing you who can help you. The God of the universe who sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have trust in that. Have trust in him and let the world happen as it does. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning and we thank you for vehicles that provide us with a way to get around. We thank you for natural resources and wisdom and all of these things that that we can experience, comfort and safety, relationships, stability. And we acknowledge that as the Egyptians, it's very easy to place our trust in them. Sure, we can say we trust in you, but when, when it comes down to it, we trust in ourselves and the things of this world first and you second. Father, we pray this morning that that your spirit would be speaking to us about where our trust lies. And if our trust is not in you and your son and your spirit, that we would take the time to say, God, I trust you. I trust the gift that you have given me, offered to me through your son, Jesus Christ, and I want to trust only in you. And Spirit, if we have friends that are in this spot where they're on the side of the road, may you give us eyes to see and the courage to stop. To stop and help lead them to you and a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.